0: Reflections on Dante's Divine Comedy, The Inferno, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 5. And it's interesting that Dante even nuances it even further because he associates the sullen not only with repressed anger but with sluggishness. He, he indicates that part of what happens when anger is repressed Is that all of that energy that's in anger is lost to the personality. And so the personality begins to be, uh, to lack energy. The energy has been drained away because it's trapped in an anger that they're afraid to experience. And so they become, they become sluggish. And in the sluggish mood, uh they resent any intimation which says that effort is required. Henry Fairley he used to write for the New Republic wrote a book on the seven deadly sins, and uh, in his treatment of anger, he locate he doesn't speak of this of course, but he locates a particular kind of repressed anger. And I think it's appropriate to this to these sullen Who are sluggish under the water murmuring and the bubbles coming to the surface in what Dante calls a infernal hymn and this is what Fairley says I can these are I can my foul language is now quotes I can get away with it (laughs) bullshit people shout in their wrath at superior authority bullshit they shout at superior knowledge Bullshit, they shout, at traditional values. Bullshit, they shout, at whatever seems to get in their way. For it is these that must be the cause of their inadequacy. In other words, resentment at anything that would require effort. And the reason the resentment is there, it's very labyrinthine to understand this. Why is that resentment there? Not having the energy available to undertake something that requires a lot of energy. Where is the energy? In repressed anger. So it is a whole syndrome that Dante has analyzed in about six lines. The psychologists, 700 years later, are analyzing it in multi-volume sets. (laughs) But it's the same syndrome. The sullen and the angry together now Dante is going to explore this at some length because it's very much uh his problem at this point in divine comedy. Very odd thing in the first line of Canto eight is the word continuing. I say continuing that long before we two had reached the foot of that tall tower, they've already seen the walls of the city of Dis. But Boccaccio, who was a the first contemporary of Dante's, the first uh, uh, somewhat of a contemporary of Dante's, and the first to write a commentary on the Divine Comedy, I mean, yes, on the Divine Comedy, said that, uh, felt, and since then scholars have felt variously, but still a number of them feel this way, that that word continuing uh, is there to indicate that the first seven cantos of the inferno were written before Dante's exile and that beginning canto 8 is written after his exile and uh, That there was some lapse in The middle because the early period of his exile was too turbulent for him to sit down and write most of the well, the poem was written uh, under the condition of exile, but uh, in the early period maybe not as much so a period of of, uh, of uh, no writing comes to an end and Dante says <clears throat> as I was saying <laughs> continuing well it doesn't matter whether that's true except that it might throw some light on a noticeable change in Dante that happens in canto 8 and that is that he becomes indignant uh, powerfully indignant so as he is entering Phlegius is the is the demon who uh, ferries the boat across the swamp of Styx to the gates of the city of Dis and he comes to the shore Virgil and Dante are waiting for him there and he says to Dante now you are caught foul soul I think it's possible, if Bocasio and others are right, to imagine Dante recognizing that he was for a while there stuck in anger himself. Exile was no small matter for Dante. He lost everything. He lost his, his family, he lost his home, his beloved city, his reputation, his friends. It was an enormous defeat for him. And Dante by his own admission was a was a uh, was a proud uh, man now you are caught foul soul says the personification of a certain kind of anger so this may be have something to do with that but what is so important is Virgil's response to Phlegius we're yours no longer than it will take to cross the muddy sleuth. I think what Virgil is saying is that anger is transitional. You can get stuck in it or you can refuse to experience it, in which case you're stuck in it. There is no way around it the the only hope is to get through it. Virgil, who is in some respects the personification of reason here, says, we're going to be in it just long enough to get through it. You don't have us. We're going to pass through it. And to indicate that that might be what it's about, the poem goes on, and just as one who hears some great deception was done to him and then Resents it, so was Flegius when he had to store his anger. So the personification of the of the swamp of sticks where the anger is is the demon Flegius who has to store his anger. Okay, now Dante uh, comes upon a sinner here halfway across the swamp. And uh, that's an indication that this is something that's closer to home. The sinner says, Who are you? Come before your time. Now, that's an insult. It says he's going to be there sooner or later. Uh, But also maybe an indication he's going to be there. He's going to be punished in that place. See? He's eventually going to suffer the eternal damnation of being stuck in anger. And Dante said to him, I've come but I don't stay. Okay? He's, again, anger is transitional. He's going to be in it, but he's going to get through it. But who are you who have become so ugly? And the sinner says, you you can see I'm one who weeps. And suddenly and inexplicably, Dante says, in weeping and in grieving, accursed spirit, may you long remain. Though you're disguised by filth, I know your name. Suddenly, when he says, I'm one who weeps, something happens to Dante. I want us to go back and analyze what that something might be in a minute. But as soon as Dante spits this curse at him, he, then he stretched both his hands toward the boat. He grabs at the boat, and Virgil forces him back. And then that done, he, meaning Virgil, threw his arms around my neck and kissed my face and said, Indignant soul, Blessed is she who bore you in her womb. That's right out of the Hail Mary. Blessed is she who bore you in her womb indignant soul. A very strange thing is happening here. It's as though Dante just passed a test that he didn't know he was taking. And Virgil is congratulating him for passing it. And passing it meant that he became angry. Up until this point, Dante has been frightened and he has pitied the sinners, but this is the first time that he's angry. And he gets a little party thrown on his behalf by Virgil, for being so. And then it gets even more. It gets even more shocking. And Dante's absolutely aware of the fact that he's shocking his reader. He said, "O oh master, I am very eager to see that spirit soused within this broth before we've made our way across the lake." And he to me. Before the other shore comes into view, you shall be satisfied to gratify so fine a wish is right. Soon after I had heard these words, I saw the muddy sinner so dismember him that even now I praise and thank God for it. Whoa, what are we talking here? Huh? He praises God for the, for the dismembering of this sinner that's going on in this lake. This is shocking stuff. But remember Dante is in the swamp of sticks right now. But also I think it's more subtle than that. First of all, to look at the 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 congratulation he gets from Virgil. Every therapist Probably is or every therapist worth his or her salt. Probably is aware of this thing that happens when finally the anger is gotten to. It. When it finally reaches the where the anger is. It's an indication that things are moving now. For this journey, anger is a very important part of the emotional repertoire. Not to have it available is to is to run the risk of being, of being contaminated severely by the sinners that he's about to experience. This anger resulted from an act of discrimination on Dante's part. And it is under the following circumstances. He says to this sinner, who are you who has become so ugly? And the sinner says, I am one who weeps. That's a lie. He's being punished for anger. He's not weeping. He he is appealing to Dante on the basis of a lie to try to get Dante to pity him. And as soon as Dante... And Dante recognizes it. It's as though a shudder goes up Dante's spine and he realizes that this sinner is trying to get him. I'm one who weeps. That's a lie. And he's trying to get him. And when Dante spits the curse back at, it, at, at him, he behaves the way he really is, namely, he grabs at the boat. And grabbing at the boat was what he was trying to do when he said, I'm one who weeps, only he was trying to do it in a subtle way. He was trying to get Dante into that sin by getting him to pity it. Alexander Pope wrote a poem called vice And in it he says, vice is a monster of so frightful mien as to be hated needs, needs but to be seen. But seen too oft, familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. And this sinner tries to get Dante to pity him. And Dante makes this visceral act of discrimination he realizes that this sinner is trying to get him into that sin and he stiffens and he he curses him. And Virgil congratulates him for having A, discovered his own anger and B, put it to good use and C, made a very subtle act of discrimination. Pity at this point when the appropriate response is anger, is a slippery slide into hell itself. In uh, apuleius' Golden Ass, where the story of uh, Psyche and Cupid, or Psyche and Amor, is told, the last of the great tasks that Psyche has to perform is to go into the underworld to obtain the, the salve from... Persephone it seems an impossible task she's bemoaning her fate as she has before a tower speaks to her and provides her with oracular insight in, as to what to do and the tower says to her when you get into the deeper regions of hell, I think Dante may have relied on this for his imagery here when you get into the deeper regions of hell you will find a lame ass being bearing a load of wood being led by a lame driver and the driver will ask you to pick up a few of the twigs that have fallen on the ground, and you must not. You must not. And then you will come to a sluggish river, and there will be a dead man, a pitiable dead man, floating in the river on the surface of it, and he will reach up to you with his rotting hands, and he will ask you to take him into your boat, and you must not be moved by pity. You must simply go on. Now, that is such a striking parallel to what Dante has done here. I suspect a, an influence. But if not a direct influence, at least um, the, the insight that pity at this point in the journey will arrest the journey right there. Some other more determined uh, position is required. And perhaps an even deeper level, um, uh, Nietzsche in uh, in the Antichrist critiques uh, Christian pity and uh, a, a sort of unre- unreconstructed Christian pity, and he says it it, it often masks an unconscious contempt, because Christians, of course, are taught to love the sinners. And so a way in which we can both love them and loathe them is that we can we can pity them. But Nietzsche saw that as disguising a loathing so that the contempt drops into the unconscious. He didn't use he didn't talk that way but and it became and he uses the French word resentiment. Resentiment. It becomes a deep it becomes a mood of spitefulness, a uh, small-mindedness. And it loses contact with the object. The resentment loses contact with the object and becomes endemic, becomes generic, becomes resentment all across the board, and becomes a kind of uh, a, a contempt for joy in the world. This is how Nietzsche saw it. I want to use another uh, reference out of Moby Dick. There's a passage in Moby Dick where uh, uh, Ishmael is talking about, referring to the story in the Gospel of Luke about the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, Lazarus, the poor soul that the rich man ignores, and he goes to heaven, and the rich man goes to hell, and so on. In the Luke story, uh, the rich man is being punished in flames. But as Ishmael retells it, he tells it in a more Dantean way. And he says this, He too lives like a czar in an ice palace made of frozen sighs. And being a president of a temperance society, he only drinks the tepid tears of orphans. Now that's, that's a description by Ishmael of a particular kind of hell. And notice how the, how pity as a, as a mask for it all. Well, that's in keeping, I think, with Nietzsche's understanding of the slide from pity into repressed anger and sullenness that fouls the whole of the emotional life. And it's Dante's discrimination in that regard and his getting righteously indignant at this at this deceit on the part of this soul that Virgil congratulates. And in a way he says, now you're ready to go on. Until you showed that emotion at this point, we simply could not go any further. To go further without showing that emotion would be too risky. I like E. Cummings. I've always liked e. e. Cummings' poem. And this is in keeping... This is Dantean as well. What does it all come down to? Love? Love, if you like. And I like. For the reason that I hate people and lean out of this window is love. Love. And the reason that I laugh and breathe is all love and the reason that I do not fall into the street is love. It's wonderful, isn't it? The reason that I hate people and lean out of this window is love. That's Dante, then they come to the ramparts of iron. Virgil goes over to have a little parley with the fallen angels, and they slam the door in his face and This is very alarming to Dante. Virgil has been able to to push aside these resistances that they've met up to this point, but now no go slam if Virgil is personification of reason, then reason has come to the end of the line in terms of being able to with great facility simply brush aside these challenges. Virgil comes shuffling back kicking the dust saying they slammed the door in my face Dante. And he begins to murmur he begins to mumble things that that disconcert Dante even more. He doesn't finish his sentences. He starts to starts to say one thing and ends up saying something else and he seems to be kind of befuddled and anxious, and Dante gets anxious. Virgil says, This swamp that breeds and breathes the giant stench surrounds the city of the sorrowing, which now we cannot enter without anger. Uh Aha! So now we know why Virgil gave him such a hug. We cannot enter without anger. And the next thing is that the furies show up. Word in, in Italian means the same thing it does in English. The furies, it means to, comes from the word to be furious. We cannot enter without anger, and then suddenly here come the furies. And they are tearing themselves apart. And they say... Now, first of all, the furies are from classical literature. The furies are the forces that pursue the unrepentant we would say in christian terms the unrepentant criminal in other words the furies is the furies are personifications of guilt that is not contrite to to, to have guilt to be guilty without being repentant or contrite is to be subject to the furies and they show up, and they snarl down at Dante, and they say, let's get Medusa. Medusa is the Gorgon who turns those who look, at, look on her into stone. And then the text comes alive, very much so, for nine very key lines. Virgil says, Turn around and keep your eyes shut fast, for should the Gorgon show herself, and you behold her, never again would you return above. And then Dante says, He himself turned me around, and not content with just my hands, used his as well to cover up my eyes. An enormous urgency now. You must not look at Medusa. Don't try to be a Boy Scout. Don't try to prove your metal. You prove your metal, you'll end up metal. <laughs> this is the Medusa, my boy. Just don't look. Okay? Just don't look. And now Dante interrupts his own poem. Oh, you possessed of sturdy intellects, observe the teaching that is hidden here beneath the veil of verses so obscure uses the word veil very importantly and he says slow down and reread what you just read until you get it well who is the medusa that he must not look at there are two tracks on which i think we could best analyze it one you might call the moral and psychological one and the other the spiritual and hermeneutical one hermeneutics means the a way of interpreting something and I would like to look at first one and then the other and then look at the interplay between them and I'm going to talk a mile a minute because we don't have all that much time Medusa presents an interpretive danger as well as a moral one in the convivio Dante had said that the sturdy intellect what he calls here the sturdy intellect when he speaks directly to the reader the Intellecto sano is a mind in the convivio he defined that as a mind that is not petrified, that is agile and free and uh, and uh, has, uh, is resourceful it I think it's reasonably clear that Dante is relying on second Corinthians an image used by St. Paul variously, but in Second Corinthians uh, perhaps uh, more to the point here. Paul writes this, This new covenant, which is not a covenant of written letters, but of the Spirit, the written letters bring death, the Spirit gives life. And anyway, their minds were hardened. Their minds were hardened. There's Medusa for you. Their minds were hardened, a veil never lifted. Dante says, will you please lift this veil? Since Christ alone can remove it, it will not be removed until they turn to the Lord. Now this Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded. The God of this world, I think, is the Pauline parallel to what Dante's talking about here with Medusa. The God of this world blinds the unbelievers. Now for Paul, the Old Testament is veiled and the New Testament is an apocalypse, namely an unveiling, a revealing. He says, there are those of whom he himself had been one earlier who simply could not interpret the Old Testament scripture because the Spirit had not broken into them. The face of Christ was still veiled, and so they were interpreting in a literal way. And he is trying to move them from a literal to a metaphorical interpretation of the text. Medusa threatens to harden or petrify the imagination, to blind to spiritual truth. And so Dante does to the reader what Virgil does to him. He averts our eye from the literal scene in order to get us to open our imagination and not be frozen into some concrete interpretation. The imagi- as Blake said, the imagination is the key to religious life. <clears throat> And anything that closes it down, that hardens it, uh, is death. And at this point in the Divine Comedy, Dante says, don't look at the Medusa because it will harden. And that's the Medusa that has touched the situation and turned it literal and robbed it of the imagination. Paul says, it is not ourselves we are preaching, but Christ. The Medusa renders a person fixated on his or or her own personal experience, literally and exclusively, because that experience is so profound. And the interpretive process is narrowed. Now I want to give an example of this again from Moby Dick. We said anger is transitional. Ishmael begins Moby Dick. Uh, well, in the first paragraph of the book, he says, "Whenever I find myself growing thin about the mouth, whenever I, whenever it is damp, drizzly November in my soul, whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bringing up." the rear of every funeral I meet, and especially whenever my hypos, which is a hypochondria or whatever, gets the upper hand of me that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically knocking people's hats off. Then I account it high time to get to see as soon as possible. And the sea is where he can begin to reinterpret life. The sea is where he all that can fall away. Anger is the final key that he's got to get there. And when he gets there, it opens up. It's that place where he can begin to feel the providential cosmos again above him. Ahab, quite the contrary, is one who is stuck in his fury, chronically furious. He is both wrathful and sullen. But Ahab has seen Medusa. Ahab has seen Medusa, and it has rendered him incapable of the interpretive enterprise. His humanity has been lost. And Virgil and Dante simply said, don't look If you can avoid looking at the Medusa, if you haven't already looked at the Medusa, don't. What if I had been at Buchenwald or Treblinka? Medusa. What if I had fought in the jungles of Vietnam high on marijuana? Medusa. What if I had been a battered or or ill-treated child, Medusa? What if I'd lost my leg to Moby Dick, Medusa? If it's happened, then those of us to whom it has happened must simply try to work work out our salvation under those conditions. But Dante is saying if you want to take the imaginative journey you must not look at the medusa because it will ruin your capacity to take the interpretive journey you simply will become it's as though you're it's as though you are suddenly magnetized and all the electrons line up and after which your whole existence like ahab's involves uh, uh, involves the compulsion of attraction and repulsion of the magnetic field that that trauma has caused. And there's simply no getting past it. That is the condition. That's the Medusa condition. Don't look at it. Don't look at Medusa. Now, there are subtler forms of the Medusa which have to do, I think, with what Paul is talking about. Namely, things that... that Convince us that there are no interpretive avenues other than the one that we have that we have locked into. In many ways, I think you could say that Freud and Marx and Jung have performed the Medusa on certain elements of the intellectual world in the Western Hemisphere, and suddenly you have on the, the, on the the psychoanalytic interpretation of everything. Or the Jungian interpretation of everything. Or the Marxist interpretation of everything. It's a medusa. It 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 is a it's the hardening of the imagination. It's the hardening of the heart in a way, but it, it is the hardening of the imagination. It's the narrowing down of the imagination. And Dante, I think, is saying, you simply are going to the reader. And to himself, don't look at the Medusa. Don't let that happen to you. Because the journey we're going to take is such a richly imaginative one that if you try to fit it into some preconceived uh, category, preconceived because of the trauma you've experienced or preconceived because of the fascination you have with a set of ideas, then you're going to violate the real mystery of the poem. And I take it, if the poem can be seen as, as, uh, you know, if all these pieces can be put together, I take it to indicate a particular danger at the point where reason can no longer, with facility, open those doors. And then we tend to hunker down around one particular interpretive strategy and, and sacrifice the imaginative resources it's going to take to explore wherever the hell it takes us. (laughs) Literally, wherever the hell it takes us. But then, suddenly, here comes this this angelic figure, this heavenly messenger, shattering, beating down, bearing, bearing off branches as it moves proudly, clouds of dust before it, it puts to flight both animals and shepherds. And Virgil says, Now take a look. Now open your eyes. Now look at that. You wanted me to get that door open and you've been you turned pale as a piece of typing paper when I didn't. And now look at what happens. The heavenly messenger comes and pushes everything aside. This great indignant March toward the gates Wa- m- charges up to them, touches them with the wand and they fall open turns around and leaves and it's the f- and it's the indication that this is a providential universe that it will come Virgil knew to wait and it came like a storm I wanted to uh, read, because it's apropos of this, I want to read something Aldous Huxley wrote. He says, uh, Who will ever believe or imagine that there can be torrents of peace which sweep away the dikes, which breach the levees and shatter the sea walls? And yet this is what actually happens. God's peace is like a river whose course is in one country and has been diverted into another by the breaking of a dike. This invading peace does things which do not seem proper to the nature of peace, for it comes with a rush. It comes with impetuosity. It comes like an element of another life with the sound of celestial harmony and with such swiftness that the soul is utterly overthrown, not because she has made any resistance to the blessing, but because of its very abundance. This abundance does no violence except to the obstacles in the way of its benediction. And all the animals that are not peaceable take flight before the onset of this peace. I read that just for that one line, the abundance does no violence except to the obstacles in the way of its benediction. And it seems to me one of the things that happens very subtly in the course of these things we looked at today is that Dante goes through the appropriate responses. Fear, anger, despair, renewed enthusiasm, he takes them each as they come along, and the souls that he's meeting are locked into one or another of them. But meanwhile, he is responding appropriately to the situation, and learning to learning to to uh, affirm his own emotional life, to to to, to uh, have it respond appropriately. He could have, he was just exiled, he could have fallen into the same pit that Ahab fell into when he lost his leg to Moby Dick. The Medusa is the fixation. And it seems to me the fixation could be either because of the life trauma like ahab or because of the fascination of some particular uh, interpretive approach now when I when I talk about interpretive approach I don't mean simply the interpretation of the, of a particular text you will notice that uh, when one chooses an interpretive approach it usually involves the interpretive approach to one's own existence as well uh, if I am preoccupied with a Freudian interpretation of uh, Sophocles, it's probably because I'm preoccupied with a Freudian interpretation of my existence. Uh, If I'm preoccupied with a Marxist interpretation (coughs) of uh, history, it's probably because I'm preoccupied with a Marxist interpretation of my own experience. So that the Medusa would would be whatever causes me to fixate my imagination and lose, the, as Paul says, the spirit of the text, the text that is my life and the text that I interpret in order to get at my life. And suddenly, Dante stops his poem. His poem is moving along, you know, the clip here. And he stops it dead in its tracks. And he looks at the reader and says, Go back and read those lines again. Don't look at the Medusa. You do, and this poem's not going to do you any good. All you're going to learn is what you already know. Why bother? What fascinates about... Ahab is the, the, the enormity of his personality. Ahab is an enormous personality. <clears throat> and his personality has been, in all its enormity, truncated by this trauma. So that all of that enormous psychodynamics is, is magnetized along one line. You could compare Medusa, I think, to Beatrice. Beatrice is the feminine Christ. The encounter with Christ always, I think you could say this, a a deep encounter always comes to the point where one hears, take up your cross and follow me. There's a journey, there's a movement. It moves it moves medusa fixes fixates obsesses and there as i said there are there are people whose fixation is absolutely understandable what dante says is if you want to take this imaginative journey the medusa experience will cripple you for it. You will not have the range, the emotional range it will take to experience this whole thing. So I, I think it's not a... It's a it's a candid understanding of what that is, what the Medusa experience is. In part today, I want to me- meditate on death. Uh, now, death is one of those things which, uh, about which almost nobody can quibble with the sage who said, uh, those who know don't speak and those who speak don't know. But I want to meditate on it anyway, and um, one of the sources of my meditation, one of the sources of my, I, my inspiration, if I could put it that way, on death is June Wilson who died uh, not too terribly long ago. And um, I was uh, privileged to, to be with her a f- few times uh, as she was approaching her own death and learned an enormous amount, if you can say, if you can call it learning. Um, so she was a teacher of, of mine for a long, for a number of years and particularly uh, in the last few uh, weeks of her life. And I, I want to share with you something that happened to me this week and also something that June taught me one of the last times I saw June, she she had this mischievous way of, of, of exploiting the drama of the situation, which was she was dying, and everybody knew it, and it created a kind of a dramatic scene, and she was, uh, she had transcended it enough to take advantage of the drama occasionally, so, uh, you know, we would all shuffle in with these long faces, and she would pull off some thing. Well, one day I was there, and she couldn't talk because... She, she had sort of cancer of the everything above the neck, you know. And uh, she uh, had this little, I've told this story before, she's had this little pad where uh, that you buy in, uh, in, at the toy store where you write on it and then you pull the cellophane up and it clears it and you write on it again. And she said something, it She so she had to write what she had to say. And uh, shortly after I got there she wrote something like... Uh, uh, words are amazing, Gil, and held it up for me to read. And then with this mischievous gleam in her eye, she, she picked the thing up and went, and they disappeared. <laughs> well, I, uh, on Thursday, I came over to the office early, as I do, and I spent the first hour or so working on uh, things of my own. And then it was time, about 7.30, time to go over and do Timonos work. And I went over, On Thursday morning, because I had in mind doing this meditation, which is a different genre uh, from some of the things we do, it's not noticeably different, but it's different for me. Anyway, I wanted to do a meditation on this week's material, so I sat down uh, at the computer, the word processor, which we have over there now, and I began to type away and type away, clickety, 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 uh, from 7.30 till about 1 o'clock. 5 till 1, to be exact. And at 5 till 1, there was a five second power outage <laughs> and the whole thing was wiped out. Well I can't share with you the first few things that came to me. <laughs> I can only say that they were that they were appropriate to this realm of hell at night. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh the, the next thing that came to me was June Wilson taking that sheet and going and having them all erase. Uh On Friday, I did the same thing and the same thing happened. It was a slightly different technical problem, but the same thing happened. So I don't know whether there's a message here. <laughs> Or not. <laughs> they say three three's the charm, and I am going to try to do this meditation today, and, uh, and we'll see what happens. Uh, I tried to work myself back to that. Last week, as you remember, I very glibly agreed with Job when he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, and blessed be the name of the Lord. I realized on Thursday and Friday that uh, it, uh, I have a ways to go. <laughs> Well, anyway, we're supposed to talk about, among other things, heresy today. Now, heresy, uh, for most of us, is not a big item. It's not a category that we're, uh, that we uh, work with very often. Most of us hardly ever think of it. We think of it in, in antique terms. Uh, and that's largely because we don't uh, have any particular take on uh, a notion called orthodoxy either, but we don't have a sense that there is something that is orthodox and something that is heterodox or heretical. So I'd like to massage these ideas just a little bit before we get into this because we won't even be able to have a sense of the significance uh, of what Dante is talking about. if we If we go to these cantos thinking that Dante has in mind... Some kind of, uh, some kind of petty conformity to a set of, uh, uh, uh w- one religious tradition's little set of rules, then we will have missed the deep and profound meaning of, of this part of the Divine Comedy. So we might regard heresy, we might regard the whole question of heresy and orthodoxy as having to do with how well or how poorly we have interpreted existence so as to live fully and deeply and meaningful, meaningfully relating to the real world. In other words, heresy or orthodoxy has to do with whether or not we are living faithfully, in the deepest sense of the term, to the world that is, the real world that is, whether there is fidelity to that real world now I say it's it has to do with how well or how poorly we have interpreted existence uh, it appears that an interpretive act is necessary we perform them no matter what it is part of our mental equipment to perform interpretive acts uh, and we tend to do that whether or not we recognize that we are doing that is another question, but we do it. Uh, so we have to, I think, become conscious of these interpretive acts and to uh, take a little more care with them. If we believe that there is a real world and there are innumerable uh, smaller versions of it, and we have, uh, we have we might find ourselves living in, in any of those. In terms of the interpretive act or, or the hermeneutic act, the, the, the business of interpretation, there are, I've outlined here just to get, just to get us thinking on this question, uh, three positions. There's a position you might call the fundamentalist position, which is that no interpretive act is necessary. Another position, which is the liberal position, is that any interpretation will do that the interpretation is subjective that it doesn't really matter as long as it works for me uh, that there is no objective criteria by which i must subject my to which i must subject my interpretation and the third position is what i call the traditionalist position which is this is the doctrine and it's always been the doctrine and I'm sticking with the doctrine uh, without bothering to grapple with it. Uh, this is a situation in which the doctrine quickly degenerates into something more like a, a doctrinaire position, uh, a kind of, a kind of uh, uh, bastion mentality. Uh, so these are various ways, and there are probably dozens more, ways of subverting the interpretive act. And not taking it seriously enough, and uh, as soon as we don't take it seriously enough, then the terms orthodoxy and and heresy become, uh, uh, you know, has been. Thomas Merton, uh, in one of his crankier moods, he got crankier as his life went on. In some ways, he got also got more mystical, but. Uh, in one of his crankier moods, he said, Most men of our time do not have enough brains or training to be capable of a formal sin against the theological virtue of faith. The faithlessness that is so prevalent in a country like America is not formal unbelief but crass ignorance. Well, in any case, we will have our dogmas and our doctrines and they will be floating around in our heads. We simply may not be aware of them and we may not have uh, taken the time to recognize them or scrutinize them or question their sources, but we will have them. They will inform our interpretations of our own experience, and if we don't know that they're there, we don't know where they came from, and we don't know what they're doing to the way we interpret our own life experience, it won't be we that have them, but they that have us. So Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton, who's always good for a laugh which is not only funny but uh, goes someplace, said the old restriction meant that only the orthodox were allowed to discuss religion. Modern liberty means that nobody is allowed to discuss it. Good taste, the last and vilest of human superstitions, has succeeded in silencing us where all the rest have failed. But there are some people, nevertheless, and I am one of them, who think that the most practical and important thing about a man is still his view of the universe. So the question that is touched on by the issues of orthodoxy and heresy is the question, do I live in the real world? Operationally, is my operational existence one that conforms to the real world or not. And if it's not, then I'm living a heretical existence. And if it is, I'm living an orthodox existence. Now, key word here is operationally. I may be, uh, I may know all of the physical properties. I may know the ins and outs of the mechanisms of evolution. But I may be grossly misinformed about the mysteries of the thing. I may not understand how it really works in the sense of, I may not have a sense of its the nature of its transformations. Malcolm Muggeridge, I'm quoting all these old conservatives here all of a sudden, Malcolm Muggeridge says, so much has been achieved by human intelligence that we have got lost in it. Whereas this other dimension that Blake calls the imagination and Pascal calls faith is the thing we most desperately need. Now, the reason I wanted to share that insight with you is the wonderful way in which Muggeridge has uh, taken these two terms as synonymous what Pascal calls faith and what Blake calls the imagination. What passes for faith in a lot of people is the antithesis of imagination. And that is not faith. That is not the kind of faith that's worthy of the name. So faith and the imagination. Now we may not think of imagination as dependent on doctrine, but maybe if we take a closer look the ego and the social conventions corresponding to it are in the business of restricting our intake of experience and focusing our choices in other words reducing the experiential reality to something that our existing paradigm can manage That is the function, and it's a humble one, but it's not an altogether useless one, of the ego. To reduce our intake of experience to something that the existing paradigm can manage. It's also the business of most social systems. Now, I've told this story in other contexts, too. In the year uh, 1106, there was a supernova. There's some supernova now, by the way. Did you know that? Well, in 1106, there was a supernova. That's a, a star that has uh, that explodes and uh, becomes uh, quite noticeable all of a sudden. In 1106, it was so noticeable that you could see it in the daytime. And at night, even when the moon was not out, it cast shadows. It was quite an extraordinary event. Uh, but it, it was not recorded in the Western Hemisphere. It was not recorded in Europe. It was not quite true. It was, was recorded in, in, uh, they, they think they have found American Indian re, uh, recordings of it, uh, in North America. Uh, but it was not recorded except for one little notation in a monastery in Scotland, uh, widely reported in China, in, uh, Japan, in India, uh, but no recordings in Europe. And it's inconceivable that there was cloud cover for the whole time it was there. And why was it not recorded? The paradigm was that that thing up there was the firmament. Uh, The firmament was firm. The firmament did not change. And that's a perfectly uh, understandable theological position, given the way that the universe was being theologized at the moment. The point of this story is that they simply could not see it. It's not as though, it's not as though the, the uh, powers that be were so totally in control that they suppressed it. It's in, impossible that they could have suppressed it that thoroughly. It was that the paradigm was so compelling and so universally uh, and unquestionably accepted that it was simply not available. The light un- undoubtedly got to the retina but no further. Well, I always think of that when I think of the ego's function and the function in some way of a social order. is to, to not let in any more experience than the paradigm can manage. Well, if the paradigm can't manage much, then we don't let in enough experience to have a full life. And it becomes heresy. So, orthodoxy and heresy still have a place for us. Now, if the paradigm is wrong, or if the paradigm is too small, uh, the ego and the social conventions become too much for us. They cost too much. And we begin to live in a, in a delusional system, something we can begin... Then, to, then we can say it's not only too small, It's so small we can call it delusional. It's become, if I can use words that have another meaning outside of this room, it has become, quote-unquote, small c, excuse me, it has become parochial as opposed to, quote-unquote, small c, Catholic. It is no longer the real universe. It is some private uh, parochial uh, experience of the real universe. So the question is, do I live in the real world in a real way, operationally? A modern person apprised of all the latest in astrophysics and all the latest in in analytical psychology might live in a smaller universe than, say, St. Francis or Lao Tzu. Question of size is not just a question of uh, gross physical property but a question question of the significance. So, since the ego and the social conventionalities um, are in this regard suspect, we need something that will critique them. And that something is, if I can generalize a little bit, doctrine. It's a teaching which is a teaching that we need because it is not, uh, it, it's not immediately apparent. Particularly not immediately apparent to the ego and the social conventions that do the ego's social work. So that we need this other thing that comes in that critiques that apparatus and encourages us to live in a larger world. So that the purpose of the doctrine is to counteract this tendency on the part of the ego and the social conventions to contract experience. Now, any doctrine that aids in the contraction of experience is heresy. The na- has the na- become doctrinaire instead of doctrine. The nature of doctrine is to open it back up again, to have us look at part of the world that we would rather not look at because it's hard to deal with. It may call our paradigms into question. They call our assumptions into question. They call us into question. Now, in terms of doctrine, Dante is uh, far less interested than we are in the question uh, in, in whether or not we're doing our own thinking. And he's far more interested than we are in whether or not what we think is so. If what we think is not so, nobody gets a gold star for having arrived at it by themselves. There's no particular advantage in that. So he is not as reticent as we are to follow the lead of somebody else. And he indicates that in this text, quite contrary to the heretics that he visits. So if we had a little experiment, uh, it might be this: We have just been alerted. See, I know some of you. Some of you hadn't read this material anyway, so we can have this experiment. (laughs) If you, if you have read the material, pretend you haven't, and imagine that you just saw, "Ah, we have entered the realm where the heretics are going to be punished." And then close the book, and pick up a piece of paper and write what you would do with that. you be the poet. What would you do if you were going to tell a narrative story about a visit to the realm of hell where the heretics are punished? How would you write the story? Well, make a few notes, think it over, uh, write some things down, and then open the book and be humbled. Because what Dante does is always enormously more resourceful and imaginative and to the point of it all the first thing he says about this realm of hell is he notices that the heretics are being punished by being confined to red hot tombs and he says no artisan could ask for hotter iron. I think the implication of that line is that what is being perverted here is the creative imagination. This is creativity. He mentions the the, the artisan and the task of the artisan. And the task of the artisan is twofold. To heat, if we use this metaphor, to heat the metal to the point of being malleable and then to do something with it, worthy of it. These have heated it to the point of being malleable, but it has not gone anywhere. It has encased them. It is a kind of creative imagination run amuck. I think that's a an insight into the heresy here. Some it, it seems to be a movement in the direction of freedom. The iron is hot and therefore malleable. But it is a prison. Seems like it's going to be creative, but it becomes confining. I think every temptation, perhaps, in the direction of a certain kind of heresy is that one. It seems like it's going to be more free, more creative. In fact, it's a trap. And the other odd thing, well, there's several odd things, but another odd thing about this is that Dante visits two uh, of the souls being punished for heresy and, there, and talks with them, and there's absolutely no mention of theology. We get a little definition of the heresy, but then when he talks to the, to the soul, absolutely no discussion of theology at all. Dante is interested in the consequences of heresy, not in its detail, not in its theological formulation. What he's going to look at is what it does to your life. Not what its theory is, but what it does to your life. But this is, this is still in the, at the end of Canto 9. He does have another little strategy for us to try to in other words, if he mentioned theology, we could say, okay, if he got into the theolo- theological thing, he'd say, well, uh, this person's heresy is heresy because, well, it has th- it's this, this theological formulation or this doctrinal articulation of things as opposed to this other one, and we could critique the two, and we would have something to compare it with. Well, since he mentions no theology, the question is, what's he driving at? Well, I think there's a hint, and it's a typical Dantean way of uh, revealing his poem to us. Uh, in the last uh, lines of Canto 9, he says, Like have been in sepulchred with like. So that the two souls we're going to visit here are entombed in the same tomb. They're entombed in pairs, and that's a convenient way for Dante to show us the essence of their heresy because these two souls in this case Farinata and Cavalcanti have absolutely nothing in common except that in real life they were related by marriage but in terms of their personalities they have nothing in common so the question is how did they end up in the same tomb in hell if they had nothing in common That is one thing in common their heresy well what was it if, we, if Dante presents none of the theology but just their life, what is it? It's a little bit like uh, asking yourself, "What does a whale and a bat? What, what do they have in common?" And then you think well, you say, "Oh they're both mammals. Oh, okay. They don't seem to have to have anything in common, except they're both mammals. And then you realize that that goes to the essence of these creatures. Well Dante has done something like that. So, that if we can do a little detective work and ask ourselves, what does Ferranata have in common with Cavalcanti? And if we can locate that, we will have located, I think, the heart of the heretical problem. Dante says at the beginning, in line 3 of uh, Canto 10, speaking of Virgil, he said, My master moves ahead, I following. And that is not only a geographical notation, it is also a notation that has to do with Dante's willingness to submit himself to another authority. And Dante was, as Dante was the, one of the transcendent geniuses of the Middle Ages, uh, enormously creative and powerful personality. And uh, submitting himself probably didn't come any easier to him than it does to anybody. Perhaps a little harder. He admits the guilt of the sin of pride. But he's making the point that he has submitted. And he will make the point later on in Canto 10 that the son of Cavalcanti, Guido, who's an old friend of Dante's, did not submit, would not submit himself to the authority of another. And therefore lived a kind of freedom that became confining so I think he he hints here right at the beginning of canto 10 the need to be willing to submit at the appropriate time to some other authority nothing more offends us 20th century types than that